13. If, if you don't have a Bible in your hands, I strongly encourage you to get one. Uh, if you don't have one, then, uh, I serve on the teaching team. Guys, I, I, love, I love the book of Ephesians. My name is Tom Nelson. Uh, I serve on the teaching team here, and uh, I also serve on campus with the Navigators. Uh, campus ministry there, been here with my family for the last uh, two and a half years in Davis, have loved uh, coming to Discovery, calling this our church home. And you guys, the reality is, I, I'm here speaking today, but I'm really, I'm really not myself by myself. And so I brought my family with me. There we are. That's me on the right. Duh. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, I want to tell you a story about one of the members of my family. Uh, if we can get that slide back up there. That's Micah on the left. He's our six-year-old son. That's my wife, Nicole. And then between Nicole and I is our three-year-old daughter, Ellie. Let me take you back almost four years, okay? It was May 10th, 2013, and my wife was pregnant, very pregnant. She was five days past due, and she looked every bit of it, okay? She was ready to have this baby. We were ready to have this baby, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the days, the contractions, they started. We're thinking, yes, finally, Finally, it's time. They started getting more severe. They started getting closer together, and we thought, let's go to the hospital. So we went, and they were monitoring Nicole for a while, and eventually they said, hey, you're not really progressing. Why don't you guys go home? Wait a little bit, then come back when you're closer. And we thought, well, gosh, you're the professionals. And so we went home, only to find out that when we got home, things changed, okay? Nicole immediately went into the bathroom, and... There was stuff happening behind that door. To this day, I'm kind of wondering what was happening in there, because there were noises, and we'd already had one child, but this was different. This was, this was primal. This was... And then we realized, we got to get going. We need to get back to this hospital immediately. So we get back in our minivan, and we're thinking, okay, let's just get there as fast as we can. And I say, sweetie, as, as we're climbing into the van, you just do what you need to do. Okay? If you need to scream, if you need to punch the door, you just do whatever you need to do. So we start going, and as we're backing out of our parking space, she just lets out this blood-curdling scream. And I'm thinking, why did I give her permission? You know, like, you know? And we're, we're going up the hill, we turn the corner, and uh, we're about a half mile from our house. And then she says something. Guys, this is what she says. She's holding the door. Tom, there's so much blood! Okay, let's keep going. Okay, we're, get, we're getting there, sweetie. And I'm, I'm pushing the gas. And I'm thinking, we have got to get to the hospital. I, what does that mean? There's so, I know what that means. And so we're going. We're about a half mile from the hospital. And I thought, you know, I thought the blood comment was the worst it could get. And then she says, you know, she's spread out over the whole car at this point, And, you know, she says this. The head's coming out. The, and I'm thinking, I know what those words mean individually. But when you put them in a sentence, that's terrifying. And so I'm flying down the road. I am, I'm going through. It's about 11 o'clock at night. I'm going through red lights. I'm weaving in and out of traffic. I'm dismissing curbs as I go. And if you were a fly on the wall in the car, right, you would have seen praying. You would have seen swearing. You would have seen crying. You would have seen screaming. You would have seen whatever Nicole was doing. And... <laughs> The reality is, I'm thinking, let's get to the hospital. Let's just get there. I fly, in, I, fly into the, uh, I fly into the ambulance bay. She's like, the head's coming out, right? It's a mess. Now, if you're squeamish, don't look at this next slide. Just kidding. Um, 
we get there, I'm honking the horn. I'm thinking, let's, we need help. We need help. I, 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 I yell at the people inside. They're on the phone. I run, around, I run around to the passenger door, open the door, and I'm thinking, I am not qualified for this. Where are the professionals? But I tell my wife, I can deliver this baby. And she believed me. <laughs> Crazy, right? And so she's pushing. I mean, the head's coming. Here are the shoulders. And I'm thinking, where are the professionals? You know? And eventually they come. And within about 30 seconds, our daughter was born in the front seat of our van. Okay? That's how our daughter... Yeah, thanks. Hey. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. It was terrifying. Um, that's how our daughter was born. Okay? And if any of you have been uh, a passenger in the front seat of our van since, <laughs> surprise, you know. Uh, <laughs> through incredible circumstances, we now had this child, you know? And for those of you who have kids, you, you know that the most critical aspects of, from their conception to the development in the womb and to their delivery are really, for the most part, outside of your control. And through, through a scene that we couldn't have anticipated or scripted, we now had this new child, this thing we were supposed to care for, to nurture, to take care of. It came with all these new responsibilities. And despite our best intentions, we still made a lot of mistakes. Parents, can I get an amen? All right, thank you for being honest. Right? Hey, the, the, the Christian church in the first century was very similar. Through circumstances that they had not anticipated, through circumstances they could not have scripted, through conditions that they weren't in charge of, they now were recipients of the teachings of Jesus, and they had to live and learn what is it to live in community under this. Right? Like new parents, they made a lot of mistakes. It wasn't clean. It was messy. Okay? Now, working on the, on the campus, I, I hear this statement a lot from students. I'm sure I said it as a student. A statement like, hey, we need to get back to the early church. Right? We hear this a lot. We need to get back to the early church. And here's the thing. A lot of times that statement is, is motivated maybe by a sense of frustration, maybe a sense of disillusionment with the way their, their, their ministry, their church is handling things. Maybe, here's one for us, maybe they're sad because they just said goodbye to their lead pastor of 10 years who they loved and dearly cherished. Maybe they just finished reading the end of Acts 2 where they read, hey, this is what the church looks like, right? All, they were filled with wonder. They all had all things in common, continually breaking bread together, right? Filled with a sense of awe and wonder. And here's the thing. I hear that, but to look at something like a snapshot, like the end of Acts 2, to assess the overall health of the early church is like, it's like looking at a man's Facebook or Instagram profile to assess the overall health of his marriage, right? You know that's a lens, but the probability is you're not seeing the full picture, okay? Here's, here's the reality, folks. In the New Testament, there are 15 named churches, 15 named Christian communities or collections of regional churches that are listed in our scriptures, and we know a lot of them by name because we find them at the tops of some of the books of our Bible. Galatia was a region. Philippi, Thessalonica, we read in Revelation, there's letters to churches. Pergamum, Smyrna, right? Laodicea. Fifteen named churches, right, in the New Testament. Thirteen of those had letters written to them that we have access to. The two exclusions are Antioch and Jerusalem. Of those thirteen, twelve were occasioned and were written with a need for correction. They were written because there was something theologically, in terms of their beliefs, that needed to be adjusted. Or something about their practice, the way 
that they were living out those beliefs needed to be corrected. Now, if you're doing math, you're realizing 15, 13, 12, that, means, that leaves one. Ephesians. That's why we're here. Because Ephesians, at that time, was, was doing something that I think we should be looking at. And Paul writes this letter to this church to affirm them and to clarify this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what the church is all about. And so here we go. Let's get started. Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Today I'm going to be preaching from three sentences in the scripture. And it will be completely inadequate. Three sentences. We're going to start off right away with the first two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard epistolary letter opening in the first century. Paul is identifying himself as the author, saying, I'm speaking to you, Ephesians, grace and peace. One thing I would like to note, Paul here is speaking to Christians. He is speaking to those who have placed their faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay? Now, if you're a guest here today, maybe I'm, I, I'm not naive. There are people in here who would say, well, I, I'm not a Christian, or maybe I'm not sure. I'm so glad you're here. It is so cool that through whatever circumstance, whether it's an invitation from a friend, maybe you just kind of happened to see this people going to this building you came in, I think it's so cool that you're here, and I hope that you look around and you see a lot of people who look and feel and think just like you. You are welcome here, and I hope you don't feel like as we're teaching about what Paul is speaking to Christians, I hope you don't feel like an outsider. I hope there is an invitation in it, Okay? That's verses one and two. We've already knocked out two of three sentences, guys. We've already knocked out two of three. Here we go. Sentence number three. And let me warn you, this sentence is a monster. You might think, Tom, wait a second. You said you're preaching all the way to verse 14. You already knocked out two sentences in the first two. What's this? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, if you were to read it in Greek, is one of the most dense, the most ridiculously complex sentences you will ever encounter. In the Greek, it is 201 words long. Are you kidding me? 201 words long. And you might look at your Bible and say, well, I see periods, I see punctuation. They added that so us English readers can read it easier. It is one giant thought that Paul wants the readers to make sure understand all of this in its entirety. So let's get to it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Still, same sentence, guys. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Should we keep going? Let's do it. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. 201 words. Can you believe it? It is a monster. One Bible commentator described Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 as the most monstrous sentence conglomeration he has ever met in the Greek language. And honestly, as I've been reading, I'm thinking, how do we preach a sermon from this? You read it, and it's like you're just slogging through molasses. So here we go. I want to just, and we are going to pack a lot of these themes over the next, these eight weeks as we're in the series. But I want to make clear one thing, right, in verse 3. At the outset of this conversation, this argument about what the church is, what it's all about, Paul makes it very clear who the central figure of the church is, okay? And it might surprise us, maybe at some level it might even assault our pride, that Paul doesn't list the thing about the church that is most conspicuous to us every Sunday when we meet together. He doesn't start with us. He doesn't start with the people. He starts with God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to make absolutely clear at the outset that the one, the subject of this massive, sprawling, glorious sentence, the one who is doing all these wonderful, rich verbs, is God. And he wants to make very clear who the recipients are of these things which God is doing. We are the object in the sense who the subject is acting on. It is God who is doing for us. God is described as blessed. What a word. Perfectly content, perfectly whole, perfectly satisfied in himself. And it is God, because he is blessed, he has the ability to bless. Okay? It is God who blesses. And it is us who gladly, with open hands, receive. Okay? The action of God reflects the character of God. Who God is is expressed by what God does. The two are inseparable. And so on your first preaching, what God has done. Okay? And and for each of these three blanks, we're just going to kind of pull a thread that's woven through this tapestry, this, this monstrous tapestry that is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. What God has done. In verse 3, it says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I want you to think of verse 3 as kind of the umbrella verse under which everything he says is going to follow. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. If you are in Christ, you have been the recipients of all of this. He doesn't meter it out. He doesn't give it on conditions. He doesn't say, hey, once you've been going to church for this long, you get access to this blessing. The moment you trusted yourself to Jesus, you became the recipient of everything. Verse 3, he blessed us. Verse 4, he chose us. There's intentionality. God actually chose us. It wasn't willy-nilly. It wasn't haphazard. There's a divine intentionality in the fact that he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons, and I would add, and daughters. He didn't just choose us, but he chose us for a purpose, that we Christians would be his, that we would be his, okay? 
verse 6, talks about the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. This choosing, this, this choosing to be his, this bringing us to himself is something he's freely given. In two weeks, we're going to hit on Ephesians 2, and we're going to talk a lot more about what it means that it wasn't given with conditions, it was freely given. Okay? Verse 8, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness, which he lavished on us. You guys are seeing a trend here. He gives, we receive. I love that word, lavish. He didn't say he, he, he tossed it out. Lavish, to bestow in ridiculous amounts, in extravagant quantities, over the top. All that he's saying here has been given to us in, through extravagant measures. The forgiveness that we have of his chosen adopted sons and daughters has been given to us in an extraordinary amount. Verse 9, he made known to us. He didn't just adopt us, choose us, freely give to us all this. He actually made us insiders into the mystery of his will. We know what he's about. We know why he came. Finally, in verse 10, the summing up of all things. Your translation might say something, the gathering up. It is in Christ the Bible says that we have all these things and God is the one who's going to bring it all together in the end. The summing up of all things in Christ. Again, we see the structure. It is God who is the subject, who is acting on us, the object. Look at all these things he does. He blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. He freely bestowed on us. He lavished on us. He made known to us. That's what God has done. Now, this is great. Hey, we're moving along. Next blank, the question. So how, how are we recipients of all this? How God did it? How did God do this? I'm going to pull another thread now, okay? Another thread in this monstrous tapestry, this glorious tapestry, and I just want you to listen. Listen closely because it might not be clear. Listen very closely. I'm just going to read some excerpts from the passage. Verse 1, of Christ Jesus. Verse 1, in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in him. You guys tracking? Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, in the beloved. Verse 7, in him. Verse 7, through his blood. We're not done. Verse 9, in him. Verse 10, in Christ. Verse 10, in him. Verse 11, according to his purposes. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in him. Verse 13, in him. Fifteen times in 14 verses, we see that it is in and through Jesus Christ alone that we have access to this every spiritual blessing. And if I wasn't wearing this ridiculous microphone and I was actually using a handhold, a handhold one, I would drop it because there really isn't a whole lot more that we have to say. It is abundantly clear from this text how God did it. It is through Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1, Paul wrote it at the same time, wrote it from Rome, the same time he wrote Ephesians. He says this about Jesus. This is one of my favorite, favorite passages in the scriptures. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Check this out. All things have been created through him, 
and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Can you believe that? It is in Jesus Christ alone, through whom and for whom all exists. He is the one who gives definition to all things, and all of this is through him and for him. That's how God did it. All right, last thread here. Why? Why did God do this? Okay? Did he do it because he was bored? Did he do it so that we could get together on a Sunday any given week and pat each other on the back and congratulate each other for how fortunate we are? No. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. It would be so easy for us to get to the how, what God did and how God did it and think he must have done it so that we could receive all these blessings so that we could just be happy and content. He gave it to us so that we could be made great and so that we could exalt ourselves and clearly he wants us to have a lot. Maybe we actually are more important than we think. He did it because in receiving it and understanding who the giver of those things is, we would turn back to him in grateful joy and say, I love that you've given this to me, but it is all about you. How God did it through Jesus. What is it he did through Jesus? He gave us all of these blessings in Christ. Now this is our our first week in the series, and so I've been asked to kind of give a, a bigger picture of this book, okay? And, you know, my, my mom, uh, I love my mom, she would often say things, well, I have a twin brother, and I'd often make a snarky remark, or if he, I did something to him, she'd say, you know, you should say you're sorry. And so it usually took the form of, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, I really meant it clearly, you know. And my mom would always say, hey, Thomas, it's not just what you say. It's how you say it, right? Takes you guys back some, right? You bet, right? And Paul's clued in on this. Paul has a lot to say, but as he's writing this book, the structure of the book is very, very intentional. And so as we've been looking at a really, uh, really quick pace at those first, that first kind of introduction, I want to zoom out, give you kind of the 10,000-foot view, and give you a sense of what Paul's doing with the overall structure of this book, Okay? We read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We already affirmed that, hey, clear that God is the subject from the beginning. And if you fast forward to the end of this first section, the end of chapter 3, we have the bookend verse that reflects that first opening, Ephesians 1-3 verse. It's a doxology. It's a glory statement, right? It says this, the end of chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. From the beginning and to the end of chapter 3, we see these bookends which clearly affirm and clearly remind us who it is to receive glory. It's the Lord. 
And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at these three chapters, okay? And for many of us, when we pick up our Bibles to read it, one of the main lenses through which we read it is, okay, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. So what am I supposed to do? What's the command to follow? What can I close this and go apply myself to? And if you're reading Ephesians 1 through 3, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Because in the Greek, there is literally one command in those first three chapters for you to do. And you know what it is? Ephesians 2.12. Remember what your life was like apart from Christ. That's the one command. Paul very clearly is setting this up so that we're not thinking, I need to do, 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 I need to be, be, be. It's, I need to receive with grateful joy what God has done. Howard Hendricks, uh, the late Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary, he had a really helpful breakdown, which is so memorable, and we had it on the video already. But I love it. I, I think it's really helpful for us as we go through this series to kind of refer back to it. Think Ephesians 1 through 3. This is in your notes. Wow. Wow. This is amazing, God, who you are and what you've done. Wow. All of chapters 1 through 3. Wow. And then there's a shift. You get to Ephesians 4, chapter 1. And I would say the entire letter hinges on one verse. Actually, literally hinges on one word in one verse. Ephesians 1, uh, sorry, 4, uh, 1 says this. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That one word the entire book hinges on is this word, Worthy. Worthy. Greek, axios. Worthy. It's derived from, from the verb axo, which means to weigh. And if you were a, a hearer in Ephesus, you would immediately think of a scale, right? And so think of a scale. Axios is when two weights are in equal proportion. And so if I had a, a pan scale here and I wanted to, to measure out a pound of flour, I would put a known weight, a one-pound weight, on one side of the scale, and I would slowly start pouring flour onto the other side until those pans were level. And I would know that I have one pound of flour. And only once those two pans were level, I would be able to say they are axios. They are imbalanced. They are congruent with each other. They are worthy. So when Paul starts Ephesians 4.1 and says, therefore, What is the therefore, therefore? He's alluding to chapters one through three. This, look what God has done. Therefore, walk in a matter imbalanced with, congruent with, worthy of this. And that is what the letter hinges on because after that point in Ephesians four, five, and six, we see a lot of imperatives. We see a lot of commands. We see a lot of things that we can enter into. We see a lot of things that we can apply to our life. And we're going to talk about that. See, walk, stand. Chapters 1 through 3, we're looking, we're beholding, we're seeing the glory of God. And walking and standing is going to be uh, in chapters 4 through 6. And we cannot get those two mixed up. Chapters 4 through 6 is the now. Wow, and then now. Wow, look what God has done. Now, how should we live Lives worthy of, responsive to what we have seen. Christian, 
behavior should only come from Christian belief. You can't have one without the other. You don't get a tree above the surface until you have roots below the surface. Okay? We need that. We need that. There's this great quote. I'm going to butcher his name. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He wrote The Little Prince. French guy. He says this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. He says, if you want to get a ship built, don't just give people the materials and teach them the mechanics how to build a ship. Give them a vision of something greater, more glorious, more wonderful. Teach their hearts to long for the vast and endless sea. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to build a ship. They're going to collect the wood. They're going to assign tasks. They're going to get it done. Church, let me give you an analogy to that quote. If you want a healthy Christian church, don't simply teach people to read their Bibles. Don't just plug them into small groups. Don't tell them to show up on a Sunday morning. Instead, teach them to treasure the unrivaled beauty of Jesus. You know what they're going to do? They're going to read their Bible. They're going to want to know him. They're going to share their faith, the greatest treasure they have. They're going to come to church because they're going to value fellowship and realize their lens to see God clearly isn't enough. They need their friends. They're going to act in line with the character of Jesus, exercising compassion in their community. Don't simply teach them the mechanics of being a Christian. Teach them to treasure the unrivaled beauty of Jesus. It's simple. We're going to have the worship team come up here. You might be thinking, um, hey, this sounds... This sounds okay. I think I'm on board with you. Um, so what do I do? <laughs> What's the application? What's the takeaway? How do I apply my, 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 my head and my hands when I leave this building? Don't do anything. We would misunderstand what Paul is trying to communicate in Ephesians if we go out and try to get ourselves really busy with good Christian behavior. Here's something you can do. Believe the gospel. Believe it. Receive what God has done for you in Christ with grateful joy. This wow now, this is the invitation that God sets before us, every single one of us, to look at him, recognizing it is he who acts for us by giving us all these things. It is he who sent his son Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to take care of that deeply ingrained sin problem that we all have, to pay for it on the cross, to rise from the dead on our behalf, and the offer is front of all, in front of all of us, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, to affirm him as Lord today. And he did it because he loved you. I don't care today if you have had the crappiest morning I don't care what your background is. I don't care about your family. I don't care about who your friends are. I don't care if you're a Patriots fan. 
There is nowhere that you can run. There is nowhere that you can hide. The startling reality is that you are never, ever, 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 ever safe from the love of God. You're never safe. The most important central figure of the church, it's not a lead pastor, it's not your elders, it's not your deacons, it's not your church staff, it's not your ministry team leaders, it's not us who show up on a Sunday morning. It is Jesus Christ himself. He is the central figure behind everything that we do here. And Paul said it very clearly, 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your love for us. We don't deserve it. Most of the time, we're actually probably not even that grateful for it. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to uh, believe that in you, Lord, we, we have all things. Lord, help us to give our hearts and our minds fully to you. You're the best. You're unrivaled. Absolutely peerless. Thanks, Lord. We're going to enter into our time of response, and we encourage you to sit and reflect on what you heard this morning. What God is doing in you and through you and what it is that God is calling you to as we dig deeper into this book of Ephesians over the course of these next eight weeks. How do we sit in, in awe at the wow that we're going to hear about in these next few weeks? And I encourage you to, to ask God to lead you in that.